0: Hello and welcome to the Victorian Gaslamp, the podcast shining a warm light on the 19th century and most notably, throughout the reign of Her Majesty, Queen Victoria. Episode 48 Men at Arms So I am sure many of you might be curious as to the title of this episode. Some of you might have worked out what I meant, and if you did, massive kudos to the pretty obscure reference as to what this episode is about. But please, bear with me, I will elucidate. I know I have made reference before to the works of British author Terry Pratchett, his twisted Dickensian city of ankh and the world he created and wrote stories about in 41 novels has kept me amused and entertained for decades. If you like amusing fantasy with a dose of social satire and a lot of brilliant writing, please take the time to look his works up. His characters come and go out of various novels across a timeline, and my favourite characters began in a novel he called, yes you guessed it, Men at Arms. Through that series we see a ragtag bunch of benighted characters evolve into a functioning police force. So take that title, That Ragtag Bunch of Characters, The last episode set in 1811, where murders were investigated without a police force and no real due process, and guess what I intend to try and bring you in a podcast? Well done you and your detective skills, because we're joining the thin blue line this episode and looking at the history of policing in Victorian England. There had been forms of law enforcement in the United Kingdom before, well, it was united, local communities and then cities would have watchmen that enforced the jurisdiction of local courts. This started formally with the statute of Winchester way back in 1285 and was in place until the 19th century. So these rules had been in place for, well, quite a while. And even in the 19th century, policing was, as I just mentioned, still very local. Certainly, there were laws that worked across the country, ones like treason, for example. But even then, the legal process was very much a case of our turf, our rules. Crime fighting was not organised on a national scale. You could be made a constable of the force if you got two or more justices of the peace to vouch for you. I have in the past given credit to Scotland as being one of the homes of medicine as we know it today, but this episode they also have to get respect for their creation of the High Constables of Edinburgh, which can be regarded as the first formalised police force. In 1611, no less. This was a force of men that were paid to only police, rather than a side gig or volunteering. As time passed, this idea spread, and by the 1700s you had paid watchmen, especially during the night. It was in 1749 that the Bow Street Magistrates Court created what became known as the Bow Street Runners. I mentioned them in the last podcast on the Ratcliffe murders, and they are considered to be the first real British police force, starting with only six men they would be a legal force right through until their merger with the Metropolitan Police in 1839. They were created by Magistrate Henry Fielding, who had become tired of the corruption among volunteers and also a high rate of bad arrests. But their nickname was actually more of a social slur than a compliment. The runners were seen as lackeys to a legal system rather than police independent of the government, so it was actually a term that they themselves did not use. By 1763, a force of horsemen were also brought into policing. It was these men that, thanks to their scarlet waistcoats, got the nickname Robin Redbreasts. This was a hugely successful move against highway robbery. And as we come to our century of choice, In 1800, an Act of Parliament created the City of Glasgow Police, as well as the Belfast Borough Police. And while he will definitely be getting his own podcast, Sir Robert Peel set up a constabulary in Ireland in 1822, and then later back in London as Home Secretary, he was instrumental in the foundation of the Metropolitan Police Force. It is from his name that the nickname Peelers became a reference to the police and the more common one that is used in the UK to this day from his first name, Bobbies. Right from the beginning, there was a strong emphasis on making sure that the police were not seen as a military, but rather a civil force. Surprisingly, no doubt to many around the world, there was a deliberate consideration to make sure that the police were not armed as military forces were. Yes, I know, times have changed. They were also given a blue uniform to make them distinctly different from a military uniform. As the decades passed, boroughs around the kingdom established further government-funded police forces. 1837 saw the Kingdom not only getting a new Queen, Her Majesty Queen Victoria, but also the first national constabulary in the creation of the Irish Constabulary. But during the mid-1800s, it was a slow process to evolve a police force as we know it today. This was a new concept and people were wary of giving citizens too much power. Basically, these new police could only arrest people for what we would regard as really minor crimes. Again, it was the concern of them being a military force on the everyday streets of London that the public objected to. Along with the blue uniform being distinctly different from the predominantly red uniform of military service, it was to allay these military fears that police were only given a truncheon rather than any form of firearm. They even wore top hats until the 1860s, and aside from the rank of sergeant being used, their official titles were also kept deliberately as non-military. In terms of crimes, at this stage the police could really only deal with buskers, also known as street musicians, and they could also deal with kids pranking people by knocking on their doors. Well, they could also find themselves arrested. It wasn't until the late 1860s that they had the power to deal with greater crimes. They even got the chance to do things like raiding brothels and other places of ill repute. This was now a full-time occupation with a wage and not only included watching out for crime, but they were also expected to light the gas lamps at night as well as watch out for fires. And while having a full-time job was a good thing in times when many people lived hand-to-mouth, it was not an easy employment. They had to work seven days a week and only got five unpaid days leave a year. They were not allowed to vote in elections. They couldn't marry without permission. They were also required to wear their uniform at all times, including when they were off-duty. During this time, police officers were expected to prevent crime from happening rather than solving it later on. So one of the first rules put in place was that their patrols were to be continuous and highly visible. And this did work. Starting in the London boroughs, there was a marked drop in crime statistics in the neighbourhoods that police patrolled as opposed to the outer areas where such enforcement was not being conducted but it came at a horrible price. The 28th of June, 1830, saw Constable Joseph Grantham being the first member of the police force to be killed in the line of duty. and Sadly, others would soon follow. Regardless of their attempts to be seen as a civilian force, the public did see them as a paramilitary force on their streets. Often called Peel's Bloody Gang, Officers were assaulted, stabbed and reportedly in one instance held down while a wagon was driven over them. As an aside, in 1850 Sir Robert Peel was thrown from his horse while riding and died three days later. As for the men that carried his moniker, 1863 must have been a bad year for them because 215 officers were arrested for being intoxicated while on duty. But slowly, the police were taking back the streets for innocent people, even as they themselves were becoming into the type of police force we know of today. Their authority expanded into policing the Royal Dockyards and other bases. A detective branch was formed, but with a scandal of three detectives being accused of corruption, it was reorganised into the now well-known Criminal Investigation Department, or CID. Guns were becoming more prominent in crime in the late 1800s with the advent of better technology, and there were calls for the police to be armed. This, however, was met with resistance from the Metropolitan Police Force. I bet that came as a surprise. They did not want to have to carry guns. The officers saw themselves as civilians enforcing the legal system, not as military men. For a period in the late 1800s, officers could be issued with firearms, but only if their senior officer felt that they could be trusted and it would be used with discretion. February 18th, 1887 was the first time that an officer, PC Henry Owen, fired their revolver in the line of duty. He did this because there was a building that was on fire and he was otherwise unable to draw the attention of the residents living there to wait them to get them out. Slightly less than what you might have expected. Moving on. The 1880s was really the decade where policing became defined as we know it today. Departments had been created. Policing was being done by what were becoming increasingly specialised officers rather than those early days walking a highly visible beat at night that let people know that the law existed. From my reading for this podcast, two events defined this social perception change in seeing the importance of having a police force in a huge city. The first occurred on the 13th of November 1887 and what became known as Bloody Sunday. To be clear this wasn't the bloody sunday of the u2 song that was in 1972 but if you want to go looking for other bloody sundays well there are actually a whole bunch of them not surprisingly pretty much all of these bloody sundays concern violence between the established law enforcement and people protesting against it but this one well it was the first sadly enough On that day in London, people were protesting the Irish Coercion Acts. I hadn't heard of these acts, but given that during the COVID lockdowns of 2020 here in Victoria, we had extremely lockdowns, I'm completely understanding of what was happening. They were basically acts of parliament that would increase state powers to control the population. Yeah, been there. These acts were designed to aid in the suppression of those among the Irish that weren't happy with the way things were. And if you had been through the Irish famine, which I've covered previously, you'd be pretty unhappy too. One of the main legal acts being attacked in this protest was one that had come into play in 1881, which meant that you could be imprisoned without trial. In episode 24, I spoke about the potato famine in Ireland and the horrendous difficulties people faced trying to farm. One aspect of this was that they were basically forced to grow potatoes because it was the only crop many people could grow that meant they had made a little money and had enough of, well, anything to eat themselves. Rents were high and kept increasing on their farmlets as they tried to survive until tomorrow. So, if a group of you wanted to get together and protest these increases made by people making money off your back, all the while living comfortably in England, we would all think that such action was reasonable. Sorry, you're wrong. An 1887 law made that illegal. Hundreds were locked up for protesting for trying to survive, It might give you some idea of just how bad this legislation was that even the Irish members of Parliament were imprisoned for protesting against it. I mean, if you've got politicians going to jail, it must be pretty bad. One in particular was Irish MP William O'Brien. He was a constantly arrested MP and member of what was known as the Land League. Probably should have called them the Justice League, but enough of modern references. A September protest he was involved in organising saw 8,000 people protesting the rent hikes and it devolved into violence with three people killed by police. William O'Brien was arrested again. And part of the Bloody Sunday protest was a call for his release. Unfortunately, the only way he actually did make it out was by escaping two years later in 1889. He fled to America, then to France... He was convicted in absentia and he later returned to Ireland and served four months. But back to Bloody Sunday. The protest was well publicised and around 30,000 people turned up to watch the spectacle in Trafalgar Square in London. With 10,000 protesters being led by Socialist Democratic Federation leaders, it was expected that the protest may devolve into violence. After all, there were only 14,000 police officers for the whole of London, a city at that time that had a population of five and a half million. So when two thousand of those police were assigned to just this one event, as well as 400 men from the army, you know things are probably going to go badly. One small spot of sanity was that Sir Charles Warren, the Commissioner of the Metropolitan Police, he declined the offer of use of a 400-gallon-per-minute steam-powered fire engine water cannon. There is no way of knowing just who physically struck first. A detail like that is lost to time and one day will no doubt be decided in some dramatic sequence in a Hollywood movie. My money is on them blaming the cops, because hey, it looks better than the establishment is persecuting the poor struggling worker, and it makes for lazy writing. Sorry. That violent day saw 400 arrests, with 75 people being badly injured. That figure includes police, two of whom were also stabbed, and also a protester that was reportedly bayoneted, of all things. Of course, it was all over the newspapers of the day. After all, bad news sells as much in the 1800s as it does today. The police were seen as being a violent instrument of the government. The fact that the protest had been led by socialists gave the whole event a democracy versus socialist flavour. There was another protest a week later on November 20th where a protester was run down by a police horse. The horse was fine afterwards, but the man later died from his injuries. But the bloody Sunday riots went down in history. And I mentioned before that there are any number of riots given that name since. But that's lazy sensationalist journalists trying to cash in on the name and the dramatic events of the first time something like this happened. But it needs to be brought in. To your attention, dear listener, that regardless of these riots, this situation was dealt with in a civilian manner. No guns, cannons, regiments or cavalry. Certainly people could protest, unfortunately it did get violent, but this was handled as a civilian concern, not a military one, which had been, as you've no doubt become aware, the biggest concern with the creation of a police force in the first place. So it's for that reason that I regard this event as being integral to the cultural change of what a police force meant to the public. It was the population exercising regulations upon themselves, not a military one imposing will. Ultimately, the men imprisoned were released in February of the next year, which was 1888. Which segues wonderfully into the next crime I want to bring to your attention as a benchmark for people realising that having a police force was a necessity in the modern era of the late 1800s. Because it was in August of 1888, only months after those men of the Bloody Sunday riots had been released, that a crime was committed that has gone down in history. The East End of London was an incredibly overpopulated area that would be called the Underclass. They were on the lowest rungs of the socio-economic scale. It's not defined geographically exactly, but it became synonymous with overcrowding, poverty and the working class of London. We all love seeing period dramas showing London with men in stylish suits, women in wonderful dresses and everything being clean regardless of the reality. People who actually work for a living are given a basic outfit and look clean and obsequious to those with money. The reality was that this area of London was incredibly overcrowded. An estimated 80,000 people lived here with narrow streets, small cramped living quarters and a heaving throng of people from all over the world trying to live together with very little opportunity to do more than make enough money to survive the day. Violence was everywhere. Alcohol was the only way many people made it through the day, and robberies were constant. Tragically, the mortality rate for children under the age of 5 was a horrific 55%. That's right, over half the children born in this area died before age 5. And let that sink in for a moment. Work was scarce and intermittent, and that was for the men. For women, trying to raise families, or even just survive on their own in this area, life was really hard. Their only choice was often to turn to prostitution for any sort of money. In many cases, this was a job taken out of survival, and if other work was available, they would take it. It's estimated that during the late 1880s, there were around 60 brothels in this small area, with 1,200 women working as prostitutes. A two-penny upright was a euphemism for a sexual act performed quickly for a couple of pence. Now, that sounds bad for all sorts of reasons, but two pennies, or tuppence, got you somewhere to sleep indoors for the night which was a matter of survival in an area that was overcrowded, economically devastated and filled with anti-Semitism, racism and other social struggles. Having to risk their lives to solicit men was a gamble that they were ready to try to ensure some measure of safety for the rest of the night. If these women were ever reported in the papers... Well, naturally, the men writing would aim for the most salacious details and refer to these poor women as prostitutes, regardless of whether or not they actually had other work. After all, saying something had happened to a washerwoman was nowhere near as sordid as saying it had happened to a prostitute. Plus, there was the public perception of judging the poor woman and therefore being at fault in some way for the crimes committed against them. So it was in the papers the day after Mary Ann Nichols was murdered. She had been killed in the early hours of August 31st, 1888. A domestic servant and mother of five children, her former husband had taken the children years before and moved out. Her father said this was because Mary's husband, William Nichols, had had an affair, but William himself said it was because her drinking problem was so bad and that she had left him. Regardless of he said, she said, in the years since the split, she had resided in a workhouse and part-time as a charwoman. This was a domestic servant that would come in for a few hours to do some work, rather than being a full-time live-in staff that many affluent houses had. During this time in the early 1880s, William was still required by law to support his wife. However, he apparently found out that she had also been taking work as a prostitute. When confronted by authorities, he stated his wife had left the family and the type of work that she was doing. Accordingly, as she was earning money via illicit means, he was no longer required to support her. This loss of funds and what appears to have been chronic alcoholism on her part meant that prostitution was her only source of regular money. This was the case until early 1888 when she found more permanent work as a domestic service. This was, by her own account, a job that she was very happy with and appreciated the work and her employees. However, her alcoholism again resurfaced and she left after just three months, stealing clothing. With little other choice, she was back in the East End in August. And on the night of the 30th of August, she wanted lodging in a public house, but didn't have the money. She claimed she would have it soon enough, and it's speculated that she was going out to prostitute herself. By 2.30am on the 31st of August, she was seen by a witness slumping against a wall, apparently drunk. The woman who saw Mary drunk against the wall was Emily Holland. She knew Mary Nicholls and was trying to convince her to return to her lodging house. Mary refused, saying that she had earned the four pence required three times over, but had spent it. Pushing away from the wall, Mary staggered off towards Whitechapel Road. It was at 3.40am that her body was discovered lying near a stable. The police were sought and while Police Constable Jonas Misen was on his way to investigate, P.C. John Neal found the body. His colleague, P.C. John Thane, was on his rounds and saw Meisen's lantern. Thane was told to get a doctor as it appeared that the woman's throat was cut. Dr. Llewellyn arrived quickly and ascertained that Mary had been dead for maybe 30 minutes. Having her body taken to the mortuary, it was then that they discovered bruising from fingers on her face and neck as well as horrific injuries to her stomach and genitals. Officially, the monster now known to history as Jack the Ripper had claimed his first victim. not going to cover all of the five murders attributed to the world's most famous serial killer. That's for another podcast for sure, although it could no doubt be a podcast all on its own. But as this episode is about the police, I'm going to be focusing on that aspect. By the time an inquest had begun into Mary's death, a second victim, a woman named Anne Chapman, had already been killed. As you can imagine, the press at the time were having a field day. Mary's murder was linked to two others that had already occurred. Emma Smith and Martha Tabram had both been killed within 300 yards of Mary's house, and while there were marked differences between the three homicides, naturally they were all speculated as being committed by a gang in the area. Ernest Park was a reporter for The Star, one of the trashy, sensationalist rags that existed at the time and was the first to speculate that this was the work of a single man. This was a narrative that soon took off amongst all the other newspapers. To give some idea of the nature of reporting at the time, it was a few weeks later that the famous Dear Boss letter that was sent on September 25th that taunted the police It was signed by the name Jack the Ripper, giving rise to his name, and it's widely believed though that the Star newspaper created this letter to maintain interest in the crimes being committed. Becoming known as the Whitechapel Murders, the deaths of the poor women in an impoverished part of London still fascinate many people to this day. But back in 1888, the police did not work with the press which I do kind of understand. Certainly, they could have utilised the press in drawing out the killer or killers, but I think that is a more modern way of thinking. The press in that time was not really accountable to anyone, and as we now know, they weren't adverse to literally making up stories to sell papers. As an example, although it does come from New York and not the UK, it was in 1835 that a series of articles was published that regaled readers of people living on the moon. It's now known as the Great Moon Hoax. Yes, you can look it up, but it's a succinct way to describe to you, dear listeners, as to the real veracity of much of the so-called journalism of the time, which I guess in some ways hasn't changed that much at all. But I digress. Because the press wasn't getting any information from the police, they resorted to following police and then interviewing people that they had spoken to and reported on what they were told. This, combined with the fictitious work on the articles, meant that there began to be a convoluted nightmare of false leads. One such now famous false lead was known as Leather Apron. He was a man that wore surprise, surprise, a leather apron and was known to carry a sharp knife and he lived in the area. He was also known to frequent local prostitutes. This was John Pizer, a man who made shoes and was found to own a number of sharp knives, which of course you would if you were cutting leather for a living. He was also Jewish. This should probably come as no surprise given the high Jewish population in the area, but anti-Semitism being what it is, he was instantly a strong suspect. How he was ever suspected is lost to time. A rumour started somewhere and it made its way to the police, and naturally the newspapers reported on it. Paiser's being Jewish did him no favours, of course, but providing solid alibis meant he was soon released but I'm sure it sold a bunch of papers. The police were then criticised by said papers for not offering a reward. The offer of a reward was actually a governmental decision, not a police one. The general consensus in government circles was that offering a reward generated more false leads and speculation rather than any real benefit. Stepping away from Jack for a moment... It was up until 1884 that a reward being offered had actually been the case, and it was at that time, four years before Jack the Ripper was on the front page, that a conspiracy was discovered. The short story was that criminals planned to bomb the German embassy, plant documents on an innocent man, and then with a tip-off to the police, offer him up as the perpetrator. Therefore, these criminals were hoping to collect a handsome reward that would have no doubt been offered in the pursuit of avoiding an international incident. When this attempted reward scam was discovered, the government changed their policy. So, rewards could still be offered, but it was the exception rather than the norm by 1888. Of course, this information was publicly known, but amongst a neighbourhood that often did not even speak English, let alone read it, it naturally fell to the police to be taking the criticism because they were a far easier public target, walking your streets rather than the men in government somewhere else. This was early days for police investigating crimes in the way that we know of today. They had no CSI East End They couldn't solve the case in an hour, including ad breaks, and were working with people that were the poorest of the poor in what was regarded as the worst part of London. The investigation was further hampered by the papers publishing pictures of suspects that may have committed the crimes. Well, to be accurate, they weren't suspects. They were just pictures that the newspaper artists made up that looked scary for the time, It was kind of like giving a talented kid the opportunity to draw someone scary and then having it published like it was, you know, real. So you live in the East End trying to make a living and you might have been someone that even vaguely looked like one of the sketches that was being printed all over London. Did you have a ratty hat, scruffy beard, shifty eyes, looked poor didn't smile, or any number of other characteristics that were shown in the pictures, well, someone was going to report that to the police. I'm sure many people did this with good intentions, but given that the pictures were literally fiction, all this caused to happen was that the overworked officers of the law chased leads that went nowhere. As the crimes continued, sadly more women were murdered in horrific ways. And again, thanks to the misogyny of the media at the time, these women were blamed for their own demise. After all, they were prostitutes. This was an occupation that entailed a level of criminality that meant if something bad happened to them, it was their fault because they themselves were criminals. I'll cover the sordid details of the Ripper crimes another time and the social implications of just how the media portrayed these women, but I mention it here because this bias further hampered the police and their laborious efforts to find the killer. The police were going door to door throughout Whitechapel. Over 2,000 people were interviewed, hundreds were investigated, and many of these were then detained before release. The Metropolitan Police had been around for decades by this time, and they had been learning that whole time. The evidence pointed to someone with skills with a blade, and so many of those questioned were in industries such as butchers or surgeons. Events escalated with it being only a few days after Mary's murder that Anne Chapman was slaughtered in early September. By the end of the month, Elizabeth Stride and Catherine Edo were also found killed in a similar fashion. Pressure was mounting from both political and social sides. And yet the police continued investigating as best they could. Police surgeon Thomas Bond was brought in to offer his opinions on the way the women were killed. By his experience and knowledge, Dr. Bond felt that all the murders had been committed by the same person, while the victim was lying down with the throat being cut as the first injury. He did not think that the attacker had any real experience in anatomical knowledge. This excluded suspects such as surgeons, for example, but Dr. Bond also did not believe that they had any real knowledge that even a butcher might have shown in the attacks. For those of you with a penchant for criminal investigation, this report by Dr. Bond is regarded as the first offender profile or criminal profile ever made. And the media pressure increased, with papers selling every sordid real or fictional detail They were literally hot off the presses, with over a million newspapers selling a day. Thanks to the public education system giving people a very basic standard of reading and writing, people could gain an understanding of what was going on. Also, the newspapers had pictures, as well as the catchy headlines, and this was the biggest story of the time. It had gone viral, to use the modern vernacular. And then Jack the Ripper vanished. Since 1888, he has become a bogeyman, the stuff of legend, myth and speculation. But it brought to prominence at the time that there was a police force out there trying to find someone who was committing heinous crimes. Our modern sensibilities always expect a result to our social satisfaction, but this serial killer was seen in the lens of the Victorian era. Everyone in Whitechapel knew hardship and injustice. That the Metropolitan Police had investigated and tried to find someone killing people who were regarded as the lowest of social classes cannot be underestimated. And in my opinion, that's why this case was so important, not because of the sensational nature of the horrific crimes, but because of the fact that the men in blue, a civil authority, not a military one, were working towards finding criminals in the most economically impoverished part of the great city of London. Throughout their early evolution in the 19th century, police forces all over the United Kingdom continued to improve their practices, skills and procedures. They may not have been perfect, but they were sincere in their actions in attempting to deter crime as well as solve those that were perpetrated. And to again refer to my original Terry Pratchett reference and his ragtag bunch of watchmen, I should add as a quick aside, he did become Sir Terry Pratchett as he had his own title after being knighted for his brilliant literature. Throughout the books, his main protagonist is His Grace the Duke of Ankh, Sir Samuel Vimes, commander of the City Watch. Sam Vimes always made sure to emphasise that a civilian authority served everyone Equally, and that they were not a military force. If you are curious, please see his works. If you want to know more, I cannot recommend them enough. And that is my five second book review for this episode. But I will end on one note and take a moment to say thank you to all those out there that serve on police forces around the world, men and women alike. It's a job that often comes with little gratitude but they're the ones out there day and night doing their best to keep you safe. And here ended the episode. You can find me at victoriangaslamp.com. My contact details are on there as well. And you can follow me on Twitter at vicgaslamp, And more importantly on Instagram where I post historical facts and trivia as well as photos related to the episodes. I am at victoriangaslamp, or one word, there as well. Thanks for listening and keep a lookout for new episodes. And as always, I'll see you next time under the gas lamp.